Okay, so if you joined this class so that you could um, participate in Craig's teaching, that's coming up soon. Um, you just have to endure two more classes with me up here, uh, and then Craig will take over for the next three weeks. Um, and he's due home tomorrow? Late tonight. Late tonight. He's in the air. Okay, awesome, awesome. So, um, I want to begin class today with a discussion of the question that Micah uh, brought up at the very end of class, and um, I had asked him to forward his thoughts to me, which he did, and then I forwarded those on to you. So, this is based off of a statement on page 36 in the book, uh, that second paragraph, or the first full paragraph, which starts with, we are blind, and I'll just read that, and then the uh, question that Micah has, and then I'm going to open it up for discussion, because I thought it was a good discussion. We are blind, hello Isolde, how are you? Welcome back, I just realized, oh, Isolde's here. Sorry, that wasn't in the book. <laughs> we are blind. <laughs> we are, I am blind. <laughs> we are blind. As churches, we no longer see God, an allusion to Hebrews 12, 14. Only the pure in heart see him, and our hearts are no longer pure. We even forget that we are at war. The host of wickedness are doing all they can to befoul the bride of Jesus. How better could they express their hatred of him? If you are honest, you will admit that at times it is hard to con conceive the ferocity and the intensity of the battles in heavenly places, the heinous and implacable will of evil to destroy and to mar anything that bears the name of Jesus. And so we play church while the fires of hell rage around us. We ought, what ought we be doing? What ought we to be doing? We ought to be exercising corrective church discipline. It is a matter of life and death for the church. Then the question that Micah brought up was, God has called and equipped us to fulfill multiple functions in his kingdom. Yet at first glance, some of these roles seem to conflict in how they play out in everyday life. How do we harmonize or reconcile our duties as soldiers in the kingdom with other, others such as peacemakers and ambassadors for Christ? And what does this look like in light of our discussion of church discipline and the holiness of God? So this idea of being soldiers, being at battle, being at war, being peacemakers, being ambassadors for Christ, reconcilers, seem to almost be, if you just take it on face value, 180 degrees from each other, right? How do we, how do we reconcile those? How do we justify being both? Discussion. Bob and then Mike. Yeah, it's Micah's question, so he's going to give away the answer. I, 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 I'll just get the, the ball rolling. I, I just want to hear what other people have to say. But the common thread between all of them is that we are representing God and that we are fulfilling His will, not doing our own. Okay. So that, okay, it. representing God, fulfilling His will, not our own. So then we see the will of God being telling us to be soldiers and at war and peacemakers and ambassadors so yeah it's kind of got the thought rolling there so how do we do it? Bob? Uh, one thing that comes to my mind is that we only seem to think of soldiers in a battlefield uh, array and uh, we don't think of them as peacemakers themselves but without law enforcement of some kind you have anarchy and that is bedlam 
And so uh, that would not be good for humanity. It would not be good for the church. Um, and so that was kind of the way I looked at it, is that soldiers are not always uh, fighting <coughs> per se. Sometimes they are peacemakers. Okay. Okay. And? I think that we see, well, I don't think I know that we see Jesus uh, fulfilling all of these roles. So if he could embody all of these roles in order to, um, you know, mirror him, then that's that's our job also. Okay. Okay. All right. David? Yes, and pointed out, you know, Jesus being in those roles. And Jesus came to reconcile man to God. You know, when man sinned, that relationship was broken. Right. And he does that very well. But there's still responsibilities on man's part to live according to his direction. Uh, We can take advantage of his grace and mercy by doing that. Uh, So, the whole idea of being at peace with God would mean that we've got to remove sin from our lives and sin from the church. And we do that when there are those that refuse to conform to what the scriptures would teach and to live an unruly life. And that's where it ties back into church discipline. Okay. Jesus also promises uh, that he, when he was still alive, he, he talks about when he was still here on this earth, he talks about how he came not to bring peace to the sword, to turn you know, mother against son, you know, father against you know, daughter. Um, but then he also mentions how, he also talks about how we, we can find peace in him so I would think that idea is contrasting when we're a part of him, when we're a part of his kingdom, we have peace amongst each other. But at the same time, you know, he can bring a sword to a family if somebody's not a part of him and somebody is a part of him. Then there's that, that dissonance, there can be that conflict. Um, so you know, when we're in the kingdom, there is peace within God's kingdom. Um, but outside of it, it's, it's chaos. So. Okay. All right. Here. We as men, when we have jobs, there's always a certain part of a job that we hate to do. But we have to but we have to do it. As Christians, we are to be peacemakers, evangelists, encouragers, edifiers, all of that. But Jesus also told his disciples towards the end, you know, if you have two coats, sell one and buy a sword. We are also to carry the sword with us. We are to be able to wield it. So it's always difficult. We, we have a tendency to think of things as opposing, but I think it's all part of the same job description that you be loving and edifying, but you also have to be strong and courageous, as God told Joshua, to do <laughs> things that we need to do to keep the church pure. Okay, good. They all go together. Yeah, I think all these comments are, are, are spot on. I think that's exactly right. <clears throat> and to me, I kind of broke it down into um, where's our focus, right? Because 
Ephesians 6 tells us to put on the full armor of God. I mean, we've got defensive, we've got offensive, right? Sword is offensive, defensive is the shield and, and, and the breastplate. So we're put, to put on this full armor of God, which makes us warriors, which makes us battle ready. But what are we warring and fighting against? Not each other. It's the, it's, it's the wiles of the devil, right? We're to guard against and fight against Satan and his armies trying to defile Christ and his blood. But then the contrary in this idea of peacemakers, what are we supposed to be peacemakers for? And, 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 and with whom? With each other and with those that have a heart that, that hearts are seeking God and seeking Christ, we're not to war against them. We're to stand firm, but I think this idea of reconciliation and being an ambassador for Christ, we're always an ambassador, but we can be an ambassador whether we're battling or whether we're peacemaking, right? But reconciling are for those that, that have gone astray, that have known Christ. And we're going to talk about this in this class too. Those that are outside are the enemies, right? Those that are inside Christ that are stumbling, that are falling, that have a problem are those that we, we work to help try to reconcile and to be the peacemakers for. And um, so to me it was the focus on what are we warring against or what are we not to war against? Who are we to, to try to reconcile? We can't reconcile someone to Christ who has never been in Christ. That doesn't mean we're not doing evangelize, try, try to evangelize them and bring them to Christ. But reconciliation is to bring someone back to a state where they had once been in and then fallen from. And so this idea of peacemaking, reconciliation, warring, I think go hand in hand, but maybe they are addressing different people and different aspects of our lives and other people's lives as well. I don't know. Kind of maybe what you guys we're thinking and, and, and saying as well too. I think it's interesting that if war or if this battle against evil were wrong, then God is wrong, right? Because there's a war in heaven going on or in the heavens or in the spiritual realm. Let's say the spiritual realm. There's a war in the spiritual realm right now with the, the, the angels of God and the angels of Satan are battling it out. And ultimately, we know there's been a victory, but there will be the ultimate victory at the very end, obviously, when it all comes to fruition and the devil has no more power um, except for those that have fallen under his, his care or, or, or um, under his purview um, by turning their back on Christ in the end. David? Yeah, the only true peace is in Christ. Certainly eternally. But I would contend even in this life. No, I think, yeah, I think you're right. The only, the only people that are truly at peace are God's people. Right, right. And I think the point that was brought up as well, that, you know, Christ said that he would, his word, the truth, would or could potentially divide families, right? Soar right down the middle, divide families. That's absolutely, but it's based on the truth. It's based on the truth. And so... There you go. Karen? I was thinking about that in the context of a physical family. 
you know, if you, I guess some, some physical families may have the idea that peace is when we just kind of overlook, we brush it under the rug, you know, we're just, we're going to make peace here. Um, but if, if you've been in a family where you all sit down and it is uncomfortable and there's conflict, but the goal is peace, the goal is purity, the goal is working together, it doesn't feel very peaceful at the time, but we're, we're, we're almost at war with one another, but we're, our goal is to get to a place of peace. Um, and so sometimes peace is hard fought, you know, sometimes it's hard to it's get true. there. Yeah. Um, that doesn't mean we're yelling at each other, but it means we're patiently and, you know, we're, we're trying to exemplify Jesus as we war to promote peace. Good, good. Here. We keep using the term warfare, but the, the battleground in a spiritual battle is a lot different than a typical war. Oh, yeah. Because it's, it's Satan usually attacking our mind. Uh, in Marie, she uh, she told us of a pretty good movie we went to see it called Running the Bases, and he had to stand up for his faith, and he was he was in a serious battle fighting evil in the movie, but the whole time that he was doing it, he was encouraging everyone around him at the same time, so it's a it's a very unique battlefield. It is. <clears throat> John. Paul told the Corinthians uh, as they were dealing with the situation of the uh, person among them living in immorality, he said, For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church, but those who are outside God judges? Um, I think, you know, as I think about this question and topic, discipline is what we do as we judge within the body of Christ, if I think of being an ambassador, my first thought goes to sharing Christ with those who don't know Him uh, and who, who aren't, who haven't given themselves to follow Him. So to me, there are just different areas of at least initial and primary focus. Okay, good. I don't know anybody that is um, if. There's anybody in here doing the daily Bible reading, the the online version that Brad told us about in January. But um, I don't know if you caught in Isaiah 54, yesterday's reading, there was a section in there about the battle and about warring, right? That I thought was very interesting, and it just it kind of struck. I thought, yeah, it's just a reminder again that uh, that God does not have a problem. He has never had a problem down through history in in Warring against evil. Um, to stand for truth. And um, depending on how far you want to take that today, but I think especially from a spiritual realm, warring against evil to stand for truth is something that he not only says is okay, he actually expects of us. He expects us to fight against evil to stand for truth. Um, but in the act of discipline, it's similar, but yet I think we can still fight against evil, even in this idea of discipline, and still be peacemakers in doing it as well. Peacemaking doesn't mean that I'm going to acquiesce to wrong. I'm going to say, well, just to keep peace, I'm going to let you keep doing what you're doing. Um, 
we won't get into the actual peacemaking class now, but, um, but just keep in mind that being a peacemaker does not mean I'm going to let evil either be in my lives or be a potential influence in my lives just so that I don't have a conflict with someone else. We always have to stand for truth first. Always stand for truth first. All right, any other thoughts or comments on this before we get into the next chapter? Okay. All right, so we're going to, uh, going to spend a little bit of time on chapter 3, No Discipline, No Church. So I'm going to read this story on page 39 and 40. Feel free to follow along um, if you want, if you have a copy of the book. Um, if not, I'll or just listen. This is a fictitious story. So it it says West Side Church of Christ or West Side Church. So there is a West Side Church of Christ. This has nothing to do with the one here in Indianapolis called that. All right. Everyone at the West Side Church was shocked in the, at the unbelievable news that one of their most beloved and active members had left his wife of more than 20 years for another woman. Ron had been a Bible class teacher, an effective personal evangelist, a fellowship group leader, as well as seemingly model husband and father. His adultery had a strangely numbing effect on the congregation. No one even wanted to talk about what had happened and nothing was ever said, at least not openly, about disciplining him. Ron was just there one day and gone the next. But in spite of his sin, Ron's faith meant too much to him to be forgotten, and he missed his active role in the church. So a few years later, he resurfaced at a congregation across town, bringing his new wife with him and asking to be accepted as a member, but with no indication of repentance. Meanwhile, members from the West Side occasionally encountered Ron socially. At first, it was really awkward for them to be around him, but Ron didn't act as if anything were wrong, and soon the discomfort left for most people, although several had serious questions about how they should regard him or if they should associate with him at all. After all, he had committed adultery and hadn't repented of it, but then he hadn't been disciplined, so no one knew exactly what to do. The situation didn't change much until several years later when Ron became seriously ill and died, with nothing having been done to try to bring him to repentance. So here you've got a, you know, starts off with a faithful worker at this church. This person commits adultery, leaves his wife, marries another. Sounds like maybe he even left town. Returns ta to, uh, to town um, because he missed some things and he was really missing church. He'd been active in it. And so he goes to another congregation across town. So we'll call it Eastside. Because he went to West Side first, right? So now he goes to East Side. There again, not the East Side church here. He goes to East Side, wants to become a member. He joins the East Side. Now this is I'm adding to this. Okay, going to make it personal here for us. He joins the East Side church, and then he gets a job back on the West Side. Instead of going to West Side, he decides he wants to come to Avon. So the question is: He accepted as is into the local church. Keep in mind, he had never been disciplined. He had already been accepted as a faithful member at another congregation. He wants to come here. Is he accepted into this local church here at Avon? If so, does his membership here make him right with God? I mean, he was had a membership with another congregation. Does that make him right with God? So, those are questions. Those are questions. So, discuss this a little bit. 
in this from the book situation. Micah. Something that just popped up to me in this recent reading um, on the first page. In spite of his sin, Ron's faith meant too much to him to be forgotten, and he missed his active role in the church. It doesn't say he missed his right relationship with God. That's interesting. Yeah. That's interesting, isn't it? Yeah. And so. Yeah. Because his role, I mean, he was active, right? I talked about that at the very beginning. He was active. Sounds like people probably looked up to him. He probably, I mean, he was involved in several things that said. And then, as Micah points out, he missed his active role in the church. Pride. What should he, what's that? Pride. Pride. Maybe pride. Yeah. Yeah. So I think, go ahead, Dave. Can I see you want to? Being an active member of a church does not automatically make you right with God. Okay. All right. All right. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of tagging on one of the last things you said. Right. That I, I'm sure you stated it that way for a reason. Yeah. 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 Bob? This kind of implied that that uh, because one church didn't deal with him, that another church was obligated to treat him the same way the former church did, as opposed to being each one being an independent body and coming to uh, their own conclusions about his situation. Okay. So now we it starts to get this one can start to get a little sticky and little uncomfortable, can't it? Because every congregation, we always say, every congregation is autonomous, right? They have their own leaders. They've, but yet, how, how, or what due diligence should a congregation make when someone says they want to be a member? What kind of due diligence should we should we take to make sure that we're not inviting sin into the camp? We know if he was here before, left, and came back, we'd know his history. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that makes it easy, doesn't it? If he was here before, right, right. The other right. church may not have, he may not have let on that he was ever married before. Right, or, yeah, or didn't repent of, it, of his sin, right? You have to ask some pointed questions. Maybe about topics that are socially acceptable but not in alignment with God's teachings and uh, because because they may not come up otherwise okay especially if you don't know this person from Adam right yeah yeah Dave all I will say when we decided we wanted to become members of this congregation we had a much more extensive meeting with the elders than we had at any other congregation. And I think that's a good thing. You are, Even though we weren't totally unknown. Right. You are a little shady looking, Dave. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, nobody else gets those meetings. I don't know. No. <laughs> but, but I do think that's really good. No. Yeah. And I think that helps to become an answer to that question. You know, they take the matter seriously. And the matter of keeping 
this church pure, pure. And, uh, and and that's the role that elders should take. Absolutely, that's very scriptural. Okay. Yeah. I just have a question. Does this does the answer change whether or not the congregation has elders? <laughs> Good question. Good question. That's why I think it's it's really important if a congregation has men qualified to be elders that there are elders. I think it's really important for that to be the case. But if we agree that a congregation can exist without elders, then number one, it becomes a little more sticky, right? Um, but then I think that you have to have a you're going to have, I think the men of the congregation at that point um, are going to have to be actively involved and help to make those decisions. And I think they're going to have to step up and ask some of those questions like an eldership would. Because if you don't have elders that are ultimately responsible, then it's every individual Christian's responsibility within that group to help try to keep that church pure and unspotted as much as possible. But it does. It becomes, it becomes much more difficult, especially if you've got, there again, I mean, I've seen, I've seen congregations of 100, 150 people and no elders, which is shocking to me and surprising. And I think at that point, if you've got 50 men trying to come to a consensus, that's very difficult. But if you've got an eldership of three, five, four, five, six, seven men, and they are on the same page, and they, have, they all have hearts for God, then it makes it much more easy, because at that point, then they have the best interest, definitely, of the congregation. Especially if you don't have elders and the person involved is a member of a family in that congregation. That's a that's a potentially a recipe for a split along family lines, which is which is difficult. But I don't think the principle changes. That's that was your question. The principle should not change. The principle should be the same whether there's elders or not. Process. The way, process. What? The process. The process. Yeah. 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 Okay. So. This question or this scenario was brought up or, or presented in, in this chapter based on the idea that if there's no discipline, you don't have a church. Now, the, I think the idea is no discipline, no sound church, right? You could have a church, you could have a group called out, you could have a group meeting and worshiping God, but are they a sound group? Are they following God's word the way God wants? Are they allowing sin to, to, to exist in the camp? The problem the Corinthians had in 1 Corinthians 5, I mean, this was, this was exactly the problem, and we'll get to this in, in some subsequent chapters. But this was exactly the problem that Paul addressed. You've got sin in the congregation. Nobody is doing anything about it. In fact, you are accepting this person as if they were still a good standing member in the church. And that's a problem. Without discipline, do you really have a godly church? Yeah. And it seems seems along that line, his point seems to be there's no distinctiveness then between this group of people 
and the rest of the world. And if there is no distinctiveness, then then really, the, the answer, as the Revelation would say, of chapters 2 and 3, they probably, in God's eyes, aren't His. Yeah. And then we're just playing church. Playing church, right. Yeah. Yeah. So let me ask a question about Ron. When he left that local church, I mean, he was there one day and gone the next. When he left, nothing was ever done. Was he still a member there? Ann? That's a, to me, that's one of the most important things we're going to talk about in here because that is most often the way it happens. It doesn't, sometimes there's somebody still trying to be a part of the church mm -hmm. who's living in sin or being very contentious or whatever needs to be dealt with, but most of the time what happens is people leave or they're basically out the door. They haven't been here for months or and they'll say, I'm not a part of that church. You can't discipline me. I'm not, you know. And then all of us have to decide how to think of that person. Yeah. That's the reality of the way it usually happens. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think, and I appreciate what has been done here in the past where we had a situation where, you know, we had someone who wanted to be a part of the group here and was trying to be and the elder said no, right? Elder said no because of issues going on. That's one of the first times and maybe the only time I've actually ever seen, I've maybe heard of another example kind of like that, but about the first time I've ever seen that happen. And that's how it played out, I think, in First Corinthians, the way it was done. But unfortunately, yeah, unfortunately, people, and we're going to talk about this in the next class about true fellowship, right? How, do, how well do we know each other? Most of the time, people fall by the wayside because maybe we have a portion of that fault as well. Not maybe, we probably do because we don't know those people like we should know those people. We don't have a relationship with those people like we should have a relationship with them. But... The question that I have kind of goes with what Ann was saying as well. I wrote this down. If a person can request to become a member and then be accepted, can a person withdraw their membership if they want? Can they say, I no longer want to be considered a member of this congregation? If I have the right to request membership, then I also should have the right to withdraw membership. And if that's the case, I... I tend to think that that can, I mean, that, that seems legitimate to me. For, to a local congregation. I'm not talking about relationship with God. I'm talking about to a local congregation. I want to be a part of this local congregation. The person says, you know what? This just isn't for me as far as this group anyway. I'm going to go to the elders. Look, I'm, I'm withdrawing my, my membership. And I'm going to visit around. I'm going to find another place to attend. Because it, for some reason, it's just this isn't the place for me. I think a person can do that. And they have that right to do that. There again to the local group. But if a person is doing that and then it's based on sin, they don't want to change their lives, and they've withdrawn their membership, you know, we always think the ultimate act of discipline is withdraw, but 
are there other things from a disciplinary standpoint? Can the church still enact some form of discipline? We really can't withdraw from them because they've already withdrawn themselves from us. But are there other acts of discipline that can be done so that members know this person has a sin problem, not that we need to just forget them, and I think this is something the elders do wonderfully here, they keep encouraging us to reach out, reach out to the people, keep trying to, to, to help reconcile them to God, but what is our responsibility at that point? Go ahead, David. Uh, taking Ron as an example, I mean, it did say he made no attempt to withdraw his membership. Right. Uh, he just left. Right. Right. Uh, although I'm not sure that matters a whole lot. Uh, my point is, I think the elders have some responsibility toward Ron to point out his sin and point out the consequences of that. And also to the congregation to point that out and to make a distinction. Uh, I've heard the term marking. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that might fit here. Right. right. In fact, I think it probably would. Yeah. Uh, but I think there are definite responsibilities even if someone chooses to withdraw their membership, uh, the elders would have some responsibility to that individual uh, and for their soul's sake. Okay. Bob? So I'm going to put a question out there, Alan Micah. And that is, are the elders only responsible for the members? Or are they responsible for those who worship in that body, whether or not they are members? Um, I understand that that person may not have given an elder, you know, uh, acknowledge their oversight of them. But uh, if someone is seeking living in a way that the church absolutely would not condone uh, and is unrepentant maybe even after some discussion can, can should the church step in and say you know what we're not comfortable with you being here uh, even though you're not a member not place membership I don't have formal oversight that you have accepted over you should discipline be taken there Before I say, John, what do you think? Anybody else have a comment? <laughs> I would say yes. Because of the influence of that person and your concern for their soul, whether they've accepted uh, your oversight or not. Right. right. The, the question becomes how do you go about that and trying to accomplish that and, you know, how, how egregious or how strong is the influence to where maybe you need to act more uh, uh, quickly and uh, with greater intent and focus or do you do you have a, uh, the chance to show greater patience 
and, and, and take time so that maybe there's the other influence that softens the heart in this area of sin. And maybe it's somewhat of a, a bit of knowledge, too. Yeah. I Go ahead, Ann. Well, that actually reminds me of a real-life situation several years ago. At Trader's Point, there was a group of uh, 80, 70 believers. There were about mm, 20 of them, I guess there were, who just suddenly started attending. And their, um, I mean, from their perspective, they you know, had a missionary zeal. They purposefully were coming to influence, influence, right. influence members here. <clears throat> and so at first, you know, people were having Bible studies with them and, um, you know, but they got to the point where they were hanging out in the parking lot, hanging out in the foyer, and just really, you know, very, again, from their perspective, yeah assertively because they really believed it. Their goal was to come in and convert this church. Right. And um, eventually, and I say eventually, it was, I don't know, several weeks, a few months, two or three months after they had, the elders had several, you know, talks with them, they were asked not to come back at all, any of them to the assembly, because it really got to the point where they were just... um, obvious they weren't um, open to any teaching on their own part and that this was their goal and they said no you can't even worship with us anymore because you're every time you're here you're actively you know creating dissension right yeah yeah yeah, it was really starting to be um it was really starting to make people feel uncomfortable you know other members in worship during worship they felt like they would be kind of being assaulted in the parking lot they couldn't get to their cars (laughs) and You know, um, so right. yeah, that was the only situation I've ever seen where elders just said, "You can't even come here at all and worship with us." But it really got to the point where that had to be done. Yeah, let me one, give me one, one one thought here. Going back to what John said in, in conjunction with what Ann was talking about, I think, and Bob, I think in my mind, the elders' ultimate responsibility. You know, we say. They, they care for the souls, right? But it's also the, the souls collectively of this local group, not just individually. And, and they have to protect this flock. We always talk about, and Christ talked about, the sheep and the flock. They have to shepherd the flock here. And if there is a wolf among the flock, a lot of times a wolf doesn't come in saying, I want to be a sheep. He comes in and says, I want to eat the sheep, right? So if there's a wolf among the flock, then I think they have a right to war against that wolf. We talk about the war and the peacemaking, right? To, to eventually to to fight the wolf off. Off. I think the idea of a disciplinary action. Yes, it's a form of discipline, but probably not the same form of discipline that would be taken to someone who is a member um, within the, within the flock, um, because of the fact that they have not and did not asks to become a part of the group. They're just like Ann said, they just came in and, and wanted to convert the group. So I think that's one of the roles of the elders is to make sure they do that. And if that requires, like Ann said, if that requires them saying, you're no longer welcome to even come through the door and we have to station someone out and say, they want to come in and say, no, you've been told. You know what? This goes back to on top of page 41. We'll talk about that here in just a second. I'm going to have uh, uh, Debbie have her comment here real quick, but I'm going to talk this idea about about um, 
keeping fences in good repair and our boundaries. And I think that's where it kind of, kind of comes into play as well. Debbie. I was just thinking, it just reminds me of Psalm 23, he leadeth me beside still waters. Because if, if you're not, if the sheep aren't settled, it's hard to worship the Lord. Absolutely. As Christ is our shepherd, that's why our elders are, 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 he's kind of designated that for them to make sure that we can be by those still waters. Yeah, yeah. No, I think that's, I think that's exactly right. So the top of page 41. At this point, we're talking about a function of church discipline known among social scientists as boundary maintenance. Any group, religious or otherwise, which claims unique status must have and maintain clearly demarcated boundaries so all can recognize who is and who is not in the group. Otherwise, group membership loses all meaning. And if boundaries are to be maintained, there must be some process by which members who violate the norms of the group, put themselves outside the group's boundaries, can be identified and or sanctioned or even removed. And then skipping down uh, four lines to the fifth line, we must recognize the inescapable conclusion that discipline is a necessary corollary to the nature of the church as it is described in the Bible. In other words, no discipline, no church. And so this idea of boundaries or fences, right? And so we want to say Christ is inclusive. Anybody can come to Christ. That's, and that's absolutely right. But if you come to Christ, if you come to this local group, you are brought into a set of boundaries that are biblical, God-centered boundaries. If someone within that group has a problem with those boundaries, then this calls for this idea of discipline because otherwise your church cannot truly exist as a, as, as a church if boundaries aren't set and boundaries aren't maintained and people are allowed to step out, step back in, step out, step back in at their will. And because of these boundaries, we have to be careful that wolves don't come into the flock to try to drive people out of those fences or out of those boundaries as well. Therefore, another active type of discipline. Remember, we've talked about discipline is not just, and that's why it's so hard, I think, in this class when we say discipline, our mind immediately goes to withdrawal. Immediately. And we have to remember that this, that, I mean, that is the worst case scenario in discipline to reach that point. Discipline is, number one, starts with ourselves. We have to discipline ourselves we have to look to be the influence to try to discipline others as far as an encouragement. That's a form of discipline. Remember, discipline and disciple come from the same root word. And then we have to make sure that the whole group is disciplined so that we maintain our status as a group of believing Christians following God to the best of our ability. And that's why I can be comfortable and should be comfortable, I believe, belonging to a church of Christ. We are a group belonging to Christ. We're not a denomination. We are a body of believers, as you say. And, and we belong to Christ. Right, right. I, should, I shouldn't be ashamed of that biblical... Uh, descriptor. Right. But it does not denote a denomination. Right. And God knows who are who is his. Right. And and we seek to be that as a body of believers here. That's right. 
Yeah, and that descriptor would a legitimate descriptor doesn't even have to be the Church of Christ, right? I mean, we, we see various biblical names. Church of God. Um, Church of the Firstborn. Church of the Firstborn, right, right. The Way. The Way. Disciples of Christ. These are all monikers that some groups have picked up. And so I think as a sense of trying to establish or, or let other people know the principles by which a group worships God, then this idea of a church of Christ has, has that, that, that moniker has, um, has served that purpose. But yeah, we have to be careful that we don't treat it as, or we don't let it become. So I think in some cases, maybe we've kind of ventured a little bit that way, in my opinion, maybe, um, but we don't let it become a denomination where, you know, Everybody, if if we Avon doesn't do it exactly the same way Brownsburg does it in this little point, then we can't have fellowship. Uh, the group in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, where son Mark attends, they basically advertise themselves by the term "Capital City Christians." Because Harrisburg's the capital yeah. city, yeah, uh, and so. You know, that's how they're right. known yeah. in that area. Yeah. And I think that's yeah. scriptural. Yeah. I've seen a sign out front of one place, and all it said is um, Christians meet here. Right? Yeah. Wow. <laughs> um, on page 43, top of the page. The social expression of this monotheistic conviction, this goes back to one, the idea of one body, or the one and only body of Christ, the oneness. The social expression of this monotheistic conviction is the exclusive unity of the worshipers, which accounts for what one writer calls the language of belonging and the language of separation. The language of belonging includes references to church members as saints, holy ones set apart, the elect, and in the language of separation, non-members are the outsiders, non-believers, the unrighteous, and those who have no standing in the church, those who do not know God. So I just wrote a question in my margin. If I can, it's so small, if I can read it now. I had wrote it with my glasses on. Does the, does the idea of non-members, non-believers, unrighteous, and those who do not know God open the door for other believers being right with God? So, does the idea of non-members, non-believers, unrighteous, and those who do not know God open the door for other believers? So, people maybe that don't attend the Church of Christ, does that open the door for other believers potentially being right with God? And we're not—I mean, that's a totally different discussion. But it was just a, a thought question I had. We had a big study on the church um, several years ago that I thought was really good. And you know, the idea of of um, I'll just say this: Are we sure that only members of the Church of Christ are going to be the ones in heaven? Ann. Not our call. <laughs> exactly right. Like, Ultimately. 
you know, Christ says he knows his. Right. Ultimately, that's right. That's right. And he brings up in this chapter two, uh, Mark, uh, ways to identify those within. He mentioned baptism and the Lord's Supper. Yeah. And I found that a little curious. I did too. I and mean, when he used obvious, maybe in some way. Right. And he used the word right of initiation when you talk about baptism. I struggled with that. I have writing in my margin. Was that a poor choice of words? We didn't, we didn't really get to, to, to that. Um, I want to finish this. There's just a couple points. I'm going to finish this chapter on Wednesday. And then we will, uh, we will get into chapter 4. So read chapter 4, the ultimate expression of fellowship. So we'll spend maybe the first 5 or 10 minutes on um, finishing up this chapter. And then we'll uh, do chapter 4 on Wednesday night. Thank you very much. Thank you.